0: Well, good morning, friends. I want to invite you guys to take your Bibles and turn with me over to Philippians chapter four. Philippians chapter four. If you're here with us today and you don't own a copy of the Bible, we would love to give you one. In fact, we've provided some Bibles uh, that should be within arm's reach of where you're sitting right now on the back of a pew in front of you or back of a chair in front of you. Uh, those are there because we're hoping that you'll take one with you. Uh, you'll be doing us a favor if you take take us up on this offer, especially if you'll give us a chance to follow up with you about what you're going to hear today and about what you may read there for yourself because nothing would make us happier than to talk to you about the Jesus who comes through this Bible on all of its pages. Uh, we, we really want to encourage you to have it in front of you this, this morning for this next bit of our time together because uh, our conviction coming into to sermons like this one is that the only reason what we're going to do here is worth any of our time is that God has actually spoken to us, that he's spoken to us through the pages of, the Bible. I don't pretend to be worth your time over the next little bit that we've got this morning. What's worth your time is, is if the God who made you has spoken a word of hope and healing offered to you for free. And that's what we believe he's done right here in this word. And, and so what we encourage you to do is to have it in front of you as I preach so that you can follow with me word by word, verse by verse, as I work through it, checking everything I say against, what's said, against what is said here. And I want to begin by reading the the, the verses that we're going to to consider together this morning. So Philippians chapter 4 is the chapter. We're going to pick up in verse 6 and read to verse 9. And I want to invite you now to stand with me in honor of God's word while I read. Do not be anxious about anything. Whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. Uh, These verses that I've just read for us this morning uh, continue on with a list of commands that we began to look at last week. Paul Paul gives this list of commands as examples of how to stand firm now. That's the anchor command, the one that stands over all the others. How to stand firm now with the love of Christ behind us and all around us and the hope of heaven before us. Uh, Last week, we looked at the first few commands in this list, and this week, we come to his final command, Do not be anxious. Do not be anxious about anything. Now let me tell you why we decided to break this one off and give it a week of its own. Two reasons. One, anxiety is a a struggle for all of us. It's not hypothetical. It's just baked into our humanity. I think, in a way, because we're human, it makes sense that anxiety would be a struggle for all of us. To be human in this world is to be in a kind of no-man's land. We have the ability to dream, the ability to imagine futures for ourselves, the ability even to plan and to work towards those futures. We have the ability to to plot out a best-case scenario we'd really like to see or a worst-case scenario that we'd really, really like to avoid But we don't have the power to build those dreams for ourselves. And we don't have the power to avoid those nightmares for ourselves. We're just too small. We're too weak and too limited. We're too too constrained by our environment and the factors that bear down on us. That's a tough gap to live in, guys, for all of us. That's something our dog Gus just can't imagine. He can't relate to it. You know, he wakes up. He eats his food. He goes out, he relieves himself, he comes in, he finds the most comfortable place that he can find that we haven't barred him from, and he sleeps there all day. That's what he wants from life. It's all provided for him. He just lives in the moment by instinct, and he's good with it because, well, he's a dog. That's how they live. I, and I'd still rather have my life than trade places with Gus. I mean, I'd rather be me than a basset hound, all in all. Uh, But but my life is, well, it comes with anxiety. That's a problem for all of us. It always has been. And I know, friends, uh, let me just go ahead and say, I know that it's an acute problem for many of you. It's a problem for all of us because of our humanity. It's an acute problem for many of you in our church. And we wanted to spend a week on this command because we know we need the help both for ourselves and for our ministry to friends and family who are deeply struggling. But there's another reason we decided to break off this command and give it a whole week just on its own. At first glance, at least when I read this command, do not be anxious. I'll be honest, First, at first glance when I read it, it feels a little bit to me like victim blaming. Uh, it, 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 don't be anxious? <laughs> yeah, okay, sure. Uh, that sounds great. I'll get right on it. If you're, in, if you're struggling with anxiety and you're feeling overwhelmed by it, and you're despairing of ever getting free from it, and somebody telling you not to be anxious anymore, well, it probably feels a little bit like what it would feel like to be dying of thirst in the desert and have somebody walk up to you and say, you know what would really help you out? You ought to take a long, cool drink of water. That's what you need. You'll feel so much better. You think, oh, of course, that's what I need. I mean, give me the water, help me. I don't just need suggestions. I need actual help. We wanted to slow down and spend a week on this command because out of context, this command can be a new burden to carry. When in fact, in context, this command gives us exactly the help that we need. Paul doesn't just tell us not to be anxious. He tells us what to do with our anxiety. That's what I want to show you this morning. Now, I want to give you one more caveat before we get into the text together. I realize that anxiety, as we use that label today, is a vast and complicated and mysterious phenomenon. It involves our bodies. It can involve symptoms that we don't understand, that we, that we can't trace back to any particular causes or anything we're specifically worried about. It can feel more like a disease that happens to us rather than a choice that we're making. And, and I want to go ahead and affirm, especially if that's what you're feeling this morning, that's what you're dealing with, that, that we need a holistic understanding of, of, of this problem. There's no question about that. And beyond, beyond what this text is talking about even, I want to be clear about what we are talking about this morning. Not, not everything that might fit under the label of anxiety as we use it today, but, but specifically what we're talking about, what Paul is talking about in these verses are anxious thoughts. What he's getting at when he tells us not to be anxious is is that we shouldn't be anxious, he says, about anything. In other words, about specific things you might fixate on and that might stir your anxiety as you think about them. Paul has in mind, especially from that phrase and from what he does in verses eight and nine about our thought life, he has in mind the way our, our minds can generate anxiety, can spiral down into it if we're not careful. And he's giving us help with that specific problem. To our tendency to fixate on concerns and circumstances and problems and what ifs. So the question for this morning that I want us to answer together through these few verses is simply, what what do I do with my anxious thoughts? When that's where our minds are going, when we're churning, when we're spinning on things that are weighing us down, what do we do? And what Paul offers us in these verses is not so much a solution, but a set of strategies that you can use from today until the day when Christ returns and removes once and for all all the ambiguity and sin from our lives. Paul gives us strategies, three specifically, for standing firm now while we wait. All of them are necessary, they're all pretty interrelated. They are these. I'm going to go ahead and give them to you now, and then we'll work through them one by one. Three strategies for dealing with your anxious thoughts when you have them. Paul shows us how to redirect our anxious thoughts to prayer. Paul shows us how to seek, or calls us to, seek the peace that we can't understand. And he calls us to fill our our, our thoughts with good news to redirect our anxious thoughts to prayer, to seek after a peace we can't understand, and then to fill our thoughts with good news that drives out the anxiety. Let's do these one by one quickly. First, first strategy comes in verse six. Redirect your anxious thoughts to prayer. Paul says, don't be anxious about anything, and then immediately he follows up with what you should do instead. He doesn't just leave you on your own with that command to go figure out how to obey it. He says, no, but in everything, In everything, he says, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. When you're anxious, pray to God about it. Now, sifting through these words that he uses for prayer in these verses, I think we can see two parts to this first strategy. The strategy is redirect anxious thoughts into prayer, and it comes with two parts that both are really, really important to notice. The first part of this strategy is be as specific in your prayers as you are in your thoughts. Uh, From what I've read, there's not really a huge difference between these words that Paul is piling up here. When he says prayer, when he says uh, supplications, when he says making your requests known, he's just using uh, different words that are almost interchangeable with one another. But I I do think that the reason he piles them up like this is that he's trying to build a sense of specificity for us, that we we should go to God with all of it. He's hammering home the point that we should tell him about everything that's on our minds and ask him for anything that's weighing us down. See, see what Paul, I think, what I think he knows when he writes these verses to us is how anxiety tends to work in our minds. Our, Our thoughts tend to run on a loop. Maybe a loop is even a generous way of describing it, more like a downward spiral, more like a toilet bowl effect that anxiety can do if it's trapped in our minds and we don't do anything to express it. We need to get it out. But just getting it out to the air doesn't do anything. We'll we'll keep working it over. That'll feel more productive unless we have something else we can do that can actually make a difference. Otherwise, we're gonna be exhausted. We're gonna waste mental and emotional energy with little to show for it because the thoughts we have have no influence over the world out there. How much better to put them before someone who does have influence before someone who really does care about our cares. Guys, this has been so convicting for me to consider as I've, as I've as sat with it all week because my tendency is to try to think things into submission. I'm terrible about this. It weighs so much of my time and, and weighs me down. I, I turn things over and over and over. I'll even talk to people in my head. I'm trying, to, I'm trying to get a point across, right? That they're not even there to hear. It does nobody any good. I've got it really worked out up here, but I'm the only one who benefits from it. I don't know. It's costing me. I can look up and, and it's been no telling how long, how much time I've lost in my workflow, how much plot in a movie I've missed out on just because I was spinning while the movie just kept on going, whatever. Can you relate to this? What I need instead is is to pray to God. I could have been doing that. I could have been just as specific in what I asked to him as I was in what I tried to say to that person in my head. Prayer is therapy. That's what Paul is saying to us. So be as specific in your prayers as you are in your thoughts. However they are spinning out, spin them into prayer, even if you need to write it out. There's a second part of the strategy, too, though. It goes hand in hand, and it's essential. you got to do this, too. And Paul's mostly focusing here on what we ask of God, these requests that we pile up before him as a way of getting things out of our head and before the God who can actually make a difference. But, but did you notice there was one qualification that he gives as he's piling up these words for prayer? He throws in one qualification with thanksgiving, verse 6. So by all means, make your requests known to God. But do that with thanksgiving. Here's why that matters. If through our requests to God, we show that we know God cares, we're, we're honoring him with, with what we need, by right? putting it in front of him instead of assuming we can care for it on our own. If that honors him by showing him that we know he cares, through our thanksgiving, we remind ourselves that we can trust him. By asking him for things, we show we know he cares about this. He is not annoyed. He's not bothered. He wants me bringing this to him. Through our thanksgiving, we remind ourselves, and we can trust him with this. We're not starting fresh with this God. We have history with him. He's already been good to us. The unfortunate reality is that our memories are just terrible, they're terrible. And and what we're experiencing in our hearts is way more often set by the what might be's of the future than the what has been of our past. And we're in good company when we struggle in this way. One of the main themes of the Old Testament was just how often Israel did this. As a whole nation, how quickly they would forget the history that they had with God. It was just after they're delivered from Egypt, right after God shows up with miraculous power to, to bring to the to to its knees, the most powerful nation in their world, to lead his his people out and across the ocean, that they get into the the wilderness and they start wondering where their next meals are going to come from. They start grumbling and complaining and wanting to go back to Egypt. They prefer slavery to coming out here to die of starvation. They've forgotten who they're dealing with. Thanksgiving is our defense mechanism against the terrible memories we're otherwise stuck with. And it is a powerful strategy for fighting anxious thoughts. I want to, consider, I want to encourage you to, to get really practical when it comes to, to thanksgiving. And to even consider, especially if you're really struggling with anxiety today, to consider making a list, even writing up a thanksgiving prayer to God that lays out what kindness He's already shown to you. Be as specific in your thanksgiving to Him as you are in your request to Him. What has he given you today? Just today. Let's just start with this morning. Thank him for the life that he gave you. You woke up with breath in your lungs this morning. All you had to do was, was wake up. He gave you that. Thank him for the flowers that are just covering up this city right now. Have you driven around Nashville lately? You seen the cherry trees and what they look like right now? Are those, uh, those those those? Japanese tulip trees is what I grew up calling them. I don't know what they're called, what they're actually called. You know, the bright pink ones that are just popping all over the city right now. Have you seen those? The daffodils, they're everywhere. Have you ever just, just take a daffodil and just stare at it? You zoom in real close. That color, they don't even have a crayon that color. That's, it's so vibrant and so beautiful. Only God could have made that. Look at the texture on each petal. Look at the beauty of the simplicity of it from a distance and the intricacy of it up close. God gave you that gift. You could do that today. What else has he given you? How about that bright sunshine yesterday and today? It feels good, doesn't it? You know who hung that star there for us to enjoy? He did. Thank him for the people that he's filled your life with. I mean, I get maybe people are part of the problem and you're stressed out about strain in your relationships right now. Maybe that's what's causing you anxiety, but you know what, friends? Chances are, even in a relationship that might be strained for you right now, chances are there's good in it too. Thank God for the good. And of course, guys, over everything else, thank him for Jesus. He did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. When you thank God for Jesus every day, you know what happens? Eventually you start to believe what Paul told us we should believe. That a God who wouldn't spare his own son, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Of course he will. He's not what the evil one wants you to believe is that he's done giving good gifts. That the last gift you got was the last one you're going to get. That his hand is now clenched over the goodness that otherwise he might shower on your life. That's not who he is. He didn't spare his own son. And You thank him for Jesus. You're going to start to believe that. So, so especially if you're crippled by anxiety today, let me encourage you to do this. Why don't you put a calendar reminder in your phone. Ask it to remind you three times a day to make a list of the things God gave you since that last reminder and to pray to him, thanking him for his kindness. Take those anxious thoughts off repeat play and turn them into prayer and don't forget, when you do, don't forget to thank him. Just watch what God will do in response. The second strategy is actually a preview of what God will do in response. Yeah, The first big strategy is redirect your anxious thoughts to prayer. In verse seven, Paul gives a summary of what you can expect if you follow his advice in verse six. And and from it, I I wanna help you see a second strategy. Paul uses verse seven to just tell you what you can expect. If you follow the advice of verse six and you pray to him and you give thanks to him, here's what will happen. It's a result, it's not another command. But built into the way Paul talks about this result is a strategy for us to make sure we're aware of and ready to embrace. Seek the peace that you can't understand. Look with me at verse seven. Paul is applying verse six in verse seven. If you follow the strategy of verse six and you take everything in prayer to God, then verse seven says, the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. The peace of God will surround you like a well-defended castle. It's through prayer, friends, that the peace of God comes to guard our hearts and minds. Prayer works as a strategy against anxiety because prayer is God's delivery system for his peace into our lives. But as I've mentioned, I want to highlight this verse for you because it'll take... It'll take some conscious thought on your part to embrace the peace Paul is promising. Because it's a different kind of peace from the peace we often want when we're anxious. You have to be willing to accept and even to seek after a peace that you can't understand. Let me break this down a little bit further. Look closely back with me at the text. Paul says in verse 7, it's the peace of God that you'll enjoy. What kind of peace does God have? This peace that you'll enjoy, the peace that will guard you like a well-defended castle, is God's peace. What kind of peace does God have? God has the kind of peace that you can only have, the perfect kind of peace you can only have when you know everything, past, present, and future. And when you have all power that nothing can threaten to do exactly what you want to do. In God's case, it's the kind of peace that comes from knowing you know exactly what's best and you have the power to do exactly what's best and nothing can stop you, not ever. He has all knowledge, he has all power and that makes God absolutely secure. That's the kind of peace that he has. When do we have peace of our own? Isn't it kind of similar to this in a way? When I have my peace, Matt McCullough's peace, It's it's when I know what's coming, relatively speaking, and I know I'm up to it. I have a certain kind of peace about cutting my grass. This time of year, it becomes unfortunately necessary to do that. It's not that I enjoy it or look forward to it, but I'll just be honest I don't get stressed about it. I, I know what that job takes, I have all the right equipment. I have experience doing this job, and at least for now, I'm still strong enough to push the mower the right distance for the right amount of time. I can even watch, as I'm cutting my grass, I can even watch progressively the grass get shorter across the yard, row by row. I can track my progress and know exactly what to expect for the end of this project. I have a piece of my own when I know what's coming and I have the power to do what's necessary. I, I don't know about you, I don't have that kind of peace about very many things in my life, though, and I don't have that peace about any of the things that matter most to me. I don't feel the same way about what will become of my kids as they grow into adulthood or about whether our church will be healthy in five years or about whether family members that I love will ever come to Christ for hope and healing. About the things that are most important to us, friends, we lack knowledge and we lack power. And that's why we lack peace. And what Paul is pointing us to by pointing us to the peace of God is a reality that that we won't find true and lasting peace by getting more knowledge or more power. We won't gain peace as a reward, in other words, as something we earn, a kind of prize that we won for ourselves, the only way we get peace, the only way we get true and lasting peace is if God gives his peace to us as a free gift. And that's the gift he gives us through prayer. The question is, guys, can you accept a peace that you can't understand? That's the sort of peace God loves to give. That's the kind of peace that comes through prayer. Can you accept it? See, in what the Bible calls my flesh, our flesh, our sinful nature, in our flesh, what we crave is a peace that's based on understanding. I, I, want, to, I want to know that I've brought the world to heal, at least through my thoughts if not through my relentless and anxious activity. Basically, I want a peace that I can earn, one I can hang my hat on, one that I'm responsible for, one that I can understand. That's the kind of peace in my flesh that I crave, especially when I'm anxious. That's the kind of drive that keeps those thoughts just going, going, going. Maybe eventually I'll get there, and then I can rest. But God's peace only ever comes as a gift. It only ever exists for us as a peace that passes understanding. Because it's one that's based on his understanding, not ours. One that's based on on his power, not our power. I still don't know the future. I still don't have any control over what's coming. I don't have things locked down the way I might want. But through prayer, through bringing everything to him, I can have a peace, not as a reward for my work, but as a gift from his hand. See, guys, because when we pray, what we're acknowledging implicitly to him is that he's God and we are not. That it's enough for us that he has all knowledge keeps us from having to worry about the fact that we don't. It's enough for us that he is omnipotent. He has all power. Now, we don't have to be. Our prayers are how we accept that we don't control them; that we aren't fit to control them. They're how we choose to trust Him instead. This, it, it, it's, it's good news for us that we are not God. The peace that God wants to give us, the peace He gives through His gift, is not a peace that comes from knowing that He'll answer every prayer in exactly the way we want Him to. Rather, as, as Tim Keller put it in his book on prayer, God always answers your prayers in precisely the way you would want them to be answered if you knew everything he knew. Prayer is how we surrender to him and how he gives us the peace that surpasses understanding. Can you accept that gift? Friends, if you're here today and not yet a Christian, Maybe the things I've said about anxiety have resonated with you. Maybe you know what it is to live as if you're your own best hope at a good life. Maybe you're tired of carrying that crushing burden. I hope you've heard clearly what I've already said. I'm gonna say it again because this is for you. There is no true and lasting peace but the peace of God. It's the only peace that works. It's a peace that's based on God's knowledge, God's power, and God's love. But there is no enjoying the peace of God apart from peace with God. The only way to enjoy the peace of God is through acknowledging to him that you've already tried to replace him instead of trusting him, instead of obeying him. Even if you haven't known he was there, built into that, friends, is a a denial of his goodness behind every good gift you've ever experienced. You can't enjoy the peace that he gives without first making peace with him through acknowledging your sin against him and asking for the forgiveness that he loves to give through Jesus. And if you do, If you can accept peace with him based on the death of Jesus to take the punishment that justice requires, what you'll get as a package deal is a peace that comes from knowing he didn't spare his own son but gave him up for us. He's not finished giving good gifts yet. You can enjoy the peace of God as a gift that covers every part of your life, if you will. Can you accept it? I want to conclude with one final strategy quickly that comes in these last two verses. Verses eight and nine give us one more strategy from Paul about what to do with our anxious thoughts. We've said we've got to redirect those thoughts to prayer. We've said we've got to seek a peace that you can't understand. That's got to be the peace you want, not a peace that you resent. And finally, the final strategy, fill your thoughts with good news. Good news. Read back with me over verses eight and nine. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence and anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Sometimes we need to redirect our thoughts out of a vicious spiral and into prayer, but sometimes we need to replace those thoughts altogether by driving them out with something better. Especially today, guys. You guys know the term doom scrolling? That one's new to me. But as soon as I read it for the first time, I knew exactly what it meant. Like this suction that we, that we feel into, whether it's your news feed on your phone or on social media or what you see on cable news, just this fixation on all the problems out there. Not just right here on our own block, but all over the world, the medievals, they had to worry about where their, where their food was gonna come from. That, in some ways, we have it a lot better than they did, but but, but, but folks who lived in medieval Europe never had to know about what was going on beyond the horizon of their village. They didn't know about genocide in northwest China or AIDS in Africa or refugee crisis in Syria. We are bombarded with information on a scale that is pretty well unlimited. Meanwhile, we're still limited. We still can't solve these problems. That comes with a weight that's difficult to carry. We're still every bit as limited as anyone has ever been, but bombarded with unlimited information. How how could we not be struggling with anxiety given the situation we find ourselves in? But Paul points us to a better idea even than just limiting your social media intake, as good as that might be to do. He shows us to push these thoughts out with focus on better things. I think the list... Uh, that I've read for you here just a moment ago is not so much a comprehensive one where every single word in here, it ties back to something specific to think about. It's more that he's building a kind of vibe of goodness, of beauty and truth. All good things in this world are gifts from God. And because all good comes from him, we ought to, we ought to, we ought to focus on what's good wherever we can find it. But, but even more than that, let me take this even one step further. This is more than just a, you know, filling your mind with your favorite things. It's easy to hear the song from Maria, you know, and sound of music behind this list. And to think about, you know, raindrops on roses and whiskers on kittens and and bright copper kettles and warm woolen mittens and brown paper packages tied up with strings. You know, think on these things. It's easy to see that's what Paul's doing here. And in a way, sure. But, But those lists have no power, not ultimately. They're too subjective. I need something concrete, something I can bank on. And that's why. To make sure we know what he's talking about, Paul gives us verse 9. He doesn't just give us this this big list of good things to think about. He says in verse 9, what you learned and received and heard and have seen in me, these are the things I have in mind. This is what's lovely. This is what's commendable. This is what's good. What have they learned and heard and received and seen from Paul? Paul. When I step back and look over this whole letter we've been considering together these last few months, the way I would sum it up, what we've taken from Paul, what we've seen in his example is a life completely sold out for, completely dependent upon the power of hope. A hope specifically tied to the crucified, resurrected, and reigning body of Jesus. Paul's filled this letter with personal examples. He tells them over and over about himself. In chapter one, he tells them, you know what, you're right, I'm in prison. Implicitly, probably gonna die here. But you know what? The whole Roman guard now knows about Jesus. So that's a win. All of Caesar's household, I've told them all. As long as Jesus is proclaimed, I'm good with it. To live is Christ. To die is gain. He's completely joyful, even though he's lost everything. That's what he's shown them about himself. Where'd he get that? In chapter three, he he, he tells them where he got it. He goes back over his own resume, and it was a good one. Uh, The stuff he had cobbled together for himself, probably driven by his own relentless anxiety, trying to to make this name. He made the name. His name rang out in his world. Now he considers it all loss so that I may gain Christ and the power of his resurrection so that by any means necessary, I can attain to the resurrection of the dead. I want what Jesus got, Paul says. And in chapter 4, he says, follow me. I'm pressing on for the goal of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. I want what, I want to be where he is. And while I press on, I'm waiting because one day he's coming back and he'll give me a body, this lowly body, a, a, a body Just like his transformed and glorious body. That's what I'm hoping for. That's what I'm straining for. Paul has shown, that's what he's shown us. And at the very center of it, at the beating heart of this letter, in the middle of chapter two, he gives us Jesus. He says, Have this mind in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Though he was in the form of God, he didn't consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. He emptied himself for us. He became obedient to the point of death. He took it that far, even death on a cross. And what happened to him when he lost everything? Therefore, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name so that in the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord Friends, how much of our anxiety comes from stressing about worst case scenarios, about the things we don't want to lose, about the disappointments we don't want to face? What has Paul showed us in his own life and in the life of Jesus that he puts in front of us over and over again? There is no worst case scenario that God's power and love cannot redeem. Through death, we rise again. Through losing all, we gain everything. What are you afraid of? That he, can't, that he can't turn to your good. What is lovely? What is commendable? What is excellent and worthy of praise? Jesus is. Jesus crucified, risen, and now reigning Think on these things and see what happens to your anxious thoughts. Think on these things, he says in verse 9, and the God of peace will be with you. Let's go to him together now. Father, we know we are so prone to grasping at a power that belongs only to you. We know that that has brought to our lives anxiety that's made us miserable all too often. We confess that sometimes our anxiety comes from justice, from us reaching for things that are too high for us. And yet you have promised us forgiveness and redemption. And so we come to you confessing and asking for your help to turn our thoughts to you, to the only God there is and the one who loves us enough to give up his own son and ask you that you would help us push these thoughts out of our minds and replace them with the good things you've given to us through Jesus. We ask you to do this work for your name's sake, for your glory, in Jesus' name.